welcome back to Cycles of Orion. This is the seventh episode of Volume 1, Fire in the Dark, containing the first half of the Axiom sequence. Sit back, relax, and take yourself away into the world of the Orion Spur. Axiom, Part 1. Olivia. The Archedon Public House, on Agathon. What can I say? I was horny. I was dressed in red and black, in this jumper that I'd just gotten made the week before. It was glamorous, tight enough to turn some heads, but loose enough to dance like a maniac. I headed down to the Archedon Pub and slugged back some of Flo's fantastic sludge. From my booth in the corner, I watched the crowd for a while as they wobbled to the beat of a drum. I stirred my waist around in my seat and scoped the room for someone suitable. There were your typical one-and-dones, the tall, dark and handsome types who came here every week for a little fun, but something about their constant reoccurrence put me off. They would come and come again, and if I so much just glanced at them for too long, they'd be beside me and I'd have the toughest time getting rid of them. No, those bros are too easy, too confident and too used, I suppose. Too used to getting what they want. Off to the side of the dance floor were the lanky, quiet types. Honestly, I love those boys. They're a hell of a lot of fun in the sun. But as soon as there's no more light, they tighten right up and slip to the side of the room, all meek and dejected. Not a drop of mojo among them. And I mean, you can draw it out of them if you take the time, but it's honestly exhausting. Then this Wehrman walked in, looking diabolical, wearing a dark speckled coat and a wild dazed frown. He looked as though hell would be a treat and like he desperately needed some stress relief. And as much as his emotional baggage put me off in the long term, his wild eyes and slim, tight-looking body suited my short-term desires perfectly. So I sauntered over, paying particular attention to the amount of sway I put in my stride, and sat next to him at the bar. Flo gave him his drink as I arrived. I said to him, you look tense, Wer, but he didn't even react. I touched his shoulder and he started spilling some of his beer. <laughs> what? Who are you? Olivia. Oh, well, I'd like to be alone, Olivia. I'd like it if we were alone, too. <laughs> What's your name, Where? Where are you from? Please, please just go away. Hmm, not a good start to the night. I felt a pang of curiosity, and I do love a challenge, but I didn't act on it. I wasn't looking to get invested in anything, despite how alluring the mystery of this man was. I know myself well enough to know that my tastes, for the time being, lay beyond the bounds of the fixer-upper this where it seemed to be. I was looking for someone to take and leave, someone to want me intensely for a night and a day so I could break a heart and move along. <laughs> Sounds cruel when I say it out loud, but hey, they always enjoy themselves. These days, long-term romance was a thought that only occurred to Olivia in the moments before sleep. It was a deep-seated sort of desire, but one that only found progress in short-lived sexual exploits. Olivia was young. Olivia was horny. The dance floor was full of wormen bouncing up against weefmen who in some places were jolly but in others were rather sorry to be involved in the whole ordeal. So I go ahead and take the place of one of the latter in front of a big beefy mountain of a were. He was brawny and he had bold features like a chiseled jaw that's fit for action vids. But his eyes, soft and green, made him look gentle. This was the kind of were I figure I could trust to choke me just enough without tipping me over the wrong kind of way. Not that we'd be getting to that point, but the image was exciting enough to at least see who he was. I spun around and stroked him on the arm. He curled up the side of his mouth and fixed me with a playful stare. 
We watched each other dance and found a rhythm of our own, and for a while, I swear we were the only two dancers there. We danced until the band broke, then we fled. I straddled that brawny where, his name was Ben, by the way, and pulled myself upright with my legs around his back. An old partner of mine had a name for this. There were always more names, but whatever. What's more important was that Ben could grab my waist and pull me around in rhythm as I angled myself however I pleased. Once or twice I felt a glimmer of the connection we had shared in the dance floor, like we were perfectly in sync, riding at the moment together. But Ben, oh, sweet Ben. Ben would always look away or stop his fluid motions in favour of this awkward, jerky kind of slow pump. Solidarity seemed to scare him. He also refused to be as rough as I'd like, and he didn't really know how to stay present. He was a teddy bear, really, but one whose gentleness comes from a cushy kind of narcissism. Like he was too proud to want someone other than himself. Or maybe he was so caught up in lasting longer that he didn't want to pay attention. But for some, maybe, but not for me. Not for long, anyway. Oh, but I did like to watch him as he got up to piss. Not as he pissed, do you understand, but definitely as he walked in and out of the bathroom. Turns out his jaw wasn't the only thing that was chiselled. The whole affair lasted five hours, with build-up, foreplay, afterplay and during play all included. Afterward, Ben was exhausted and tucked into sleep. I thought about leaving, but decided I was pretty tired too, so I spooned up against him. After a little while though, he shrugged me off and said he was hot. Now, I lay here, thinking about my life and how I'm living it. I don't love Ben, far from it, but we had made love as the term went. Same story for a long line of my lovers. But then, there's that word again, love. Is there supposed to be some kind of bond between us now? Am I supposed to long for him after we part ways? No, of course not. But something still feels strange, as though we've exchanged more than just fluids. Do they call it making love because of some kind of nebulous byproduct of the act itself? There's no postcoital artifact that congeals in the leftover lust muck, but the process of sex, the entire process, from first touch to sticky disentanglement, is a project in the construction of love. The skin contact, the attentiveness, the energy, the passion. For a while you become one entity, dedicated to maintaining and appreciating itself. At least, you should. Thinking about big brawny Ben, I'm not so sure. An actual intercourse is the least stimulating part. It's just the climax, the final event that cuts off the session, hopefully, before it gets too long and people get chafed. After the fact, I don't know, I've never had too great an experience after the fact. But the build-up, the dancing, the shy looks, the anticipation, the glorious humiliation of being naked with a new person for the first time, that's where the stimulation comes from. It's a mind game and one rooted firmly in the anticipated future. But love? Love is still another thing. I start to think about that deranged whir at the bar. I'd only thought of him as having one problem too many, but that moment could have just as easily been the start of something beautiful. I could have shared his pain, eased his burden, and he could have done the same for me. But I was horny then. Now I feel empty. I thought I had felt something for Ben. I always feel something for the worm and I pursue. It's a moment of hope, a moment of longing in his eyes that triggers the lights inside my own. And maybe that's all love is. That moment of hope, the exhilaration, the desire. Love, like time, could be fleeting. It needs a beginning and an end to properly exist and you can only understand it by the shadow it leaves. I feel like the shadow of my future love is darkening me more every day. It slowly consumes me, 
erases my old self and drags me towards something I can only hope to one day understand. I take a deep breath and hold it in. As I let it out, my heart flutters for a moment and I smile. Fleeting, love may be, but even in the abstract, that fleeting love is enough to brighten me up. It was just this kind of brightening, however, that made Olivia happy when she woke up the next day. And it was just that kind of happiness that stopped her from finding within herself the longing for love that would compel her to search for it. Tomorrow, Olivia would wake. She would walk home. She would go about her day as usual. But someday, fleeting desires would not be enough. Someday she would trick herself into believing that love was something more and she would spend years and years chasing after the moment that she knew now so certainly to be evanescent. But until that day, Olivia would know love as something reserved for a split second, as a moment unspoken between two horny souls. Axiom Part 2 Evgenia Club Zantar Alhura Abadi Evgenia knew that she was in love with Freddy from the first time they met. Now, if you were to ask any of Evgenia's friends, why him? They would be hard-pressed to find you an answer. Freddy, according to everyone other than Evgenia and the Ware himself, was a vile human being. It wasn't always what he said, though often he said awful things, but the way he verbally towered over anyone unfortunate enough to make his acquaintance. Once, after being accused of misogyny for his sidewalk catcalls, Evgenia heard him say, with a provocative grin and upturned nose, I only have one use for whiffies I see on the street. One of Freddy's companions gave him a deathly stare, to which Freddy replied, staring at Evgenia, To be fair, it's one more use than I have for the wares. <laughs> and Evgenia, the whistle E, had taken it as a compliment. She was enthralled, relished their time together, wondered afterward if she had been of use, as Freddy might say. But her friends convinced her to keep it to herself, at least for a while. Leave some space for the memory of her aunt, you know? Well, you don't know. See, Evgenia's aunt, Joanne, was a Weefman grown powerful by her own kindness. She had been a central figure in Alhura, a spiritual leader in all but name. If ever there was a community project in action, her name was sure to be found on the roster. Many said she belonged in the Fellowship, but she was one of the precious few who believed that the Fellowship belonged on every world there was, not as a rule, but as a custom. She, unfortunately, contracted the Geminian Plague during its initial outbreak, being the first in line to assist in setting up a quarantine. Her doctors told her she would be dead within three months, bedridden in two. Alhura poured out its coffers for Joanne, piled together over three million packs as a chest for her to draw from as she fulfilled all her dreams. She would see the spur. She would meet the Martian Pope. She would see what all the fuss is about filters. She got to see up to midway before the pain began, but she never got to meet the Martian Pope. She was infirm by the time she made it back to Abadi. So 
So Evgenia's friends prayed to the light that she was only delusional with grief. But meanwhile, she was sitting on the edge of a whirlpool with Freddy at its center. One day she met with her friends at their favorite club. Freddy hadn't been invited, but Evgenia was overjoyed to see him there by coincidence. Except, of course, for the fact that he was fondling the elbow of a pale whiffman in a green dress. Evgenia kept close to her friends and had an alright time until Freddy left with the pale whiffman about an hour later. By that time, many spirits had been raised, tipped, and drained, and Evgenia was in that particular stage of alcohol consumption just past the so-called woo stage when her problems started to sink into the bottom of her already saturated brains. She stormed across the dance floor toward the exit, a movement which a few clubbers mimicked and turned into a tango. Then her friends came and grabbed her and sat her down on a stool at the bar. They scolded her gently, and when she took issue, they scolded her fiercely. But the booze had emboldened her, and so she railed against them for stifling her blossoming love. Then they brought out the big guns. Are you sure you're not avoiding some other emotions in your life, Evie? I don't know what you're talking about. And to be fair, Evgenia wasn't entirely sure. Once her mind had given her a goal, the monster hiding behind her was easily forgotten. But then once you remember, once you realize that there's something waiting for you in the dark behind your eyes, it's hard to think about anything else. A month ago, I arrived midday at Aunt Joanne's. When I got there, my cousin Leo met me at the door with a face like stone. Aunt Joanne was dying. I followed Leo into my aunt's bedroom, where the scrawny, bulbous, gawking figure of Joanne lay twitching under the skin. Only seven people were in the room. Joanne's ex-husband, her son and daughter, her mother, her sister, me, and Joanne herself. Somehow Aunt Joanne was calm and she looked at each of us in turn. I was at the end of the circle, and I was terrified to look Joanne in the eye. I couldn't bear to see the whiffman who had guided me through all my life wither and die before me. Then it struck me that Joanne would be the first person I would ever watch die. Finally, Joanne's gaze fell on me, and she managed a wide smile. She looked at everyone again, then said weakly, I love you all so much, and faded away. Each and every day since, I've wondered if I felt her die or not. Each and every day, I've tried to put into words what I felt. So far, I've come up with nothing. Are you going to make me say it? Your aunt, Evie. You can't keep pretending that it isn't affecting you. I used to listen to you talk about her all night. Don't you think that maybe you're following Freddy around because you're self-destructive? Pain won't get rid of pain. It just stores it, like a bank. And until you take it out again, it keeps gaining interest. And not the good kind, either. Oh, come on. You love my bad jokes. That was a joke? Not now, Liz. I want to go home now. Please, just let me go home. And they did. However, Teresa and Liz followed at a distance. But they didn't have to. Evgenia wasn't running after Freddy. She was running away from the teeth behind her eyes. Her friends obviously knew her better than she knew herself. That would explain how she could be so thoughtless as to forget about her aunt. No, not forget about her but rather willingly discard the thought like she was throwing a sheet over a grotesque old painting in the attic. She still knew the painting was there, but she couldn't quite know it for what it really was. She pulled up the edge of the sheet, thinking, Am I letting myself fall in love to cope? But then, on the thought of coping with, she cast the sheet back down. I'm not talking about the really serious love that makes people run screaming when you mention it too soon. I don't think I am, anyway. But it isn't just lust. I'm not that superficial. I'm infatuated, and it feels wonderful to hope. He's intelligent, ambitious, easy on the eyes. Nobody gets a sense of humor is all. He's sarcastic, but he isn't very good at it. 
I smile more when he's near. I laugh, sometimes without any reason, except that his face brightens in my direction. He's too good for me, but I let myself hope to keep from falling into despair. It seems I'll be falling either way. Best then to fall into something I can smile at on the way down. A whiffman walked along a path with a cart following her. She had long dark hair that wobbled when she walked and sharp looking features that stayed put. She glanced over her shoulder and looked uncomfortable, although there was nothing close by that was threatening. She continued to walk. Across the lawn, an equally sharp figure stumbled out from behind some bushes, looking haggard and possibly sloshed. He was obviously trying to avoid the gaze of someone, and it didn't even take me a second to realize he was following the dark-haired Whiffman across the park. The thought troubled her deeply, but rather than do anything to help the young Whiffman rid herself of the tale, Evgenia sat and thought about how the sight had affected her. Was she going to become like this Weef? Or like this where? Would she follow Freddy around as he whined and dined and bedded and boozed? And even then, would she be any more to him than a nervous glance and a wistful thought? To the first, no. She didn't think she had it in her to actually stalk a person. Although, the thought of how two different people in such close proximity, they being the stalker and the stalkee, could experience a moment in time so differently made Evgenia ponder the Freddy problem in a different light. One that allowed her love for Freddy and the grieving process to coexist. From what I can tell, there are three different time scales at play. Aunt Joanne's time was long and steady, fixed to mind, but always anchored in the past and moving a little slower. Sometimes I felt like I was pulling my aunt along, but maybe she was giving me some consistency, some roots. With my parents gone, I had a lot of pain that needed venting. Have. <laughs> and Joanne lived in time with the healing process. But then she was gone, and my time accelerated rapidly. More and more activity got packed into every second. Funeral preparations, funeral service, reception, ashes, will. At the end of all of it, I felt the need to slow down, but I ignored it. If I slow down, if I slow down, I might have to feel it again. As for Freddy's time, well, I don't know very much about Freddy's time. I can't even begin to guess what his moment looks like or how quick it is, but I do like to imagine that I'm approaching it in my acceleration. He's just so ambitious. I need time to catch up. I wonder if Freddy can feel me approaching like I can feel myself accelerating. I wonder if people can feel each other in time. Did Joanne know she was dying before she got sick? How long could she feel it? Could I feel it? Did I know on some level, but hoped it away so I didn't have to understand? <sighs> There was a time when we were so in sync, but the past few years we've been unstable. Maybe our time ran out when it stopped matching up. And now maybe I'm trying to make up for lost time by living fast and impetuous. I mean, I only half expect to actually catch up. To Freddy, I mean. Oh, but the acceleration is exhilarating and the hope is beyond necessary. It's a reason to get out of bed. It fishes me out of the pit I'm sulking in. But is it what I really want? Am I just trying to sync up to another time as if one is equal to another? Maybe I'm avoiding coming to terms with the finite machine I inhabit. Ugh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe. It's all I've ever got and it's dragging me down. Time travel is exhausting work when you think too much about it. There are writings from ancient earth that I studied at the academy, religious writings for my religious studies degree. 
Some of them, my favorites, claimed that the human soul was universal and that the spark of life was identical in all living things. So as a result, I like to say that differences are a result of hardware. And you know, the Agate thinks something similar. Whether or not it's true is irrelevant. What really matters are the overall effects of a given religion upon its practitioners. If someone were to believe in the universal spirit, for example, then they were more likely to be compassionate. Maybe they would also believe that if we are all one soul, we can know other times, multiple times, all time, but it would mean giving up on hope, worldly hope that is. It would mean rejecting their self as the exclusive center of the verse and understanding the world is inclusive, at which point separation breaks down and distance, duration, and frequency are nothing but illusions. All roads lead to nihilism. I think it might help to interject at this moment to inform you of Evgenia's extremely poor performance at the Academy. Consider yourself informed. Some ancients thought that finding the wholeness of life was the purpose of it, that all life strives toward it, regardless of intention. Some slightly less ancients say that we give purpose to life through our choices. Could they both be right? Maybe one leads to the other. Maybe we merely have to pick one and hope and risk and lose until we wake up one day and realize that the purpose we give to our time here is all that sustains us. And once we're gone, it's all we are. I'm not ready to give up on hope just yet. I still need a reason to get up every morning that isn't just routine. It's one of my greatest fears to live by force of habit. I still want to explore time, my time, the time of others, Freddy's time. Maybe one day I'll even find my aunt's time again. I snapped out of my daze and looked around the park. The stalker was long gone and I was glad. All it took was a little time travel to make me feel better. But time travel being exhausting work, I walked home feeling spent. I'd managed to think my way into a headache, one of those localized chronic pains around the top of my ears. Evgenia rubbed her temples and hobbled into her apartment. From afar, Teresa and Liz were watching, and they smiled as their friend got home safely. They remembered a time when Evgenia was the peg that held their group together. They hoped that someday soon she would come back to them. Axiom Part 3 Tommy Alhura Abadi Hey, how you doing? Name's Tommy, Tommy Tumbler, soon to be king of a body. What was that doubt I smell? Good, I love proving people wrong. Right, so get this, I used to be an advertising designer on Dyson for five years before I moved here to a body. And then, this one day, this, this Pellerine woman tells me that I would find true love in the Commonwealth. And that's all the nudge I need. The Pellerine are a group of nomadic spacers who travel in convoy fleets across the Spur. Often when they stop in at a station or a world to resupply, they make a point of infecting the minds of bright-eyed young people with delusions of grandeur. Why? <laughs> for the laughs, of course! Now, I'm not normally one for superstition and fate and all that garbage. But I was looking for a way out. I told my friends that I was moving away to escape the endless bureaucracy of the Pax Republic, but honestly I moved to escape my friends. Don't judge, man. These guys were allies of convenience and proximity and were not the sort of friends I ever saw myself keeping. Suit, tie, always on kind of people, you know? 
Yeah, you know. <laughs> I doubt I'll even record for them. While many in the past were excited for a future where they could get their hands on a form of instant and reliable communication, the realities of interstellar civilization make such technology impossible. A message sent direct from a body to Dyson, for example, would take four and a half thousand years to travel at light speed. Imagine a video conference that took 10,000 years. So the practice of recording and sending messages is widespread throughout the Federation. I'm not trying to say that my friends weren't pleasant, nah. I just try to judge my friends based on how much I enjoyed their reactions to events unfolding around them. Those people whose reactions complement my own or give me insights or even antagonize me constructively, I call my friends. But on Dyson, in PAX, ugh, friends are there mostly for their utility. A good friendship is one that's mutually, materially beneficial. Love, from what I can tell, is a matter of necessity. If a person exists that you can't live without, a person who means so much to you that you actually can't picture your life without them, that's love. Mutual codependence. But something about that doesn't quite jive with my taste. Friendships felt shallow, romance felt business-like. Okay, okay, I think about it like this. When a drunk man falls off his stool, Paxions laugh. When a waiter drops a tray, Paxions boo. And most of the people I met in Pax don't seem to have any problem with it. In fact, I think it makes them happy if their stock of smiley photographs and vids are any indication. Those online streams filled with meme after meme, cruelly mocking the unfortunate drunks and waitstaff of the world. You know, it occurs to me now that whole pockets of the extranet must be filled with reels of masked people staring out at carnival mirror versions of themselves. If only the digital could see their fleshy doppelgangers, they might not smile so easy. Here in the Commonwealth, things are different. The drunken man who falls is held back up. The waiter is handed a broom while a dustpan is held. Maybe I'm making it out to be more than it is, but as far as I'm concerned, compared to Dyson, a body is Shangri-La. And so now, here I am. I didn't know what I was going to do when I got here. Still don't. But I've got some money put away that's enough to live on for at least a few months without working. And this is the Commonwealth, so, like, bonus. Because they acquired most of their raw resources with little to no capital investment on Chokshi, and they boasted a very low cost of living due to low population density and general wealth equality, the Commonwealth, in this moment, was a hot spot for immigration from the more densely populated and strictly managed mid-disc worlds. And you know what that means. That's right, weird young people and strange young businesses sprouting up like soybeans. But. Back to when I got here. Let me set the scene for you. It's a particularly sunny and cloudless midsummer's afternoon, and I'm walking through the streets of Alhura feeling pretty damn good about myself. I've just arrived planetside and beamed out my resume, and now I'm getting my bearings, feeling the place out. And you know, I think it's just about time to halt productivity for the day and make an assault on the local taverns. I look up into the bright blue sky and catch the glint of something far off. And friends, I know now that particular glint was like God himself winking at me 
letting me know he was about to do me a solid. I didn't even believe in God, but like, after what happened next, man, I don't know. Suddenly, the sky is filled with what's gotta be hundreds of these boxy yellow ship crags for sure, and they're all coming down onto this one big warehouse. Agents dressed in blue cascade out of the ships cover every entrance. They storm the place, and there are explosions, yelling, screaming, and for a little while, I think I hear that particular buzz of beam weapons. I'm freaking out, so I run into the first shop I find, a battalion grocery, and then, friends, I run into the girl of my dreams. Literally, I run into her and she drops the crew she just bought. I'm so sorry. Here, let me help. My name is Tommy. Thomas. Oh, your parents must have loved you with a name like that. With a name like, oh, no. No, it's Tumblr. Tommy, Tumblr. That's really not much better. And you know, friends, I should probably be offended, but I'm too busy looking at Barbara. She's got straight, shineless hair and close eyes. A warmth rises up in my chest and for a little while, I don't say a thing. <laughs> okay. Did you see what just happened outside? Uh, yeah, some of it. Probably there's a smuggler on his way to the fellowship that got busted. Happens more than you think. Your name? Um, Barbara. Barbara. That night, I keep on searching for a tavern, having previously been in the wrong part of town and only found clubs. Not that kind of night. Yet. So I shuffle into a place called Awonan to Nawanan, which, if you don't know and why would you, I only know because I used to advertise for this Lotzi firm. If you don't know, it translates super literally to lucky good time. A literal translation from Garono, which is a less widely spoken but still prominent language of the Lhotse, is good probability time, good in time and space as in material good, and time in the abstract sense, specific live time then would be Minan. That explanation is confusing because in fact, Awonan de Nawonan is gibberish, even to those fluent in Garono. These were obviously not Lotsy running the joint, but the kind of people who name things in different languages because they sound cool to their own ears. I'm sure they tried to match it to their business, but they could never quite get to the same level as someone from Lotsgard. The Lotsy hail from Fura, one of the worlds enslaved early on by Arcadia. They are bipedal, cephalized, and intelligent, similar to humanity at the end of its 20th century. As the result of a mutiny on board an Arcadian transport, five million Lotsi resettled on a world that they called Fanosi Lotsgardo, which translates to Sanctuary for Free Lotsi. They were accepted into the Federation, but could unfortunately offer little in the way of intelligence as to the identity of their captors. All they knew at first contact was that humans were the devil incarnate. Strikes me as insightful. Their form is analogous to Earth's Canis genus, with hawks instead of ankles and incomplete lips. However, specific shape is variable from race to race, and their culture and language, further variable within their population, is extremely rich and nuanced given their preference for an oral tradition. 
There are very few consonants available to the Lhotse tongue, and so much of their conversation is melodic. Common banter is often mistaken by humans for musical recitation. I walk into the bar, not letting the name bother me. And lo and behold, who's sitting there? I say, Barbara, at the bar. And despite that, she smiles. Tommy Tumbler, who tumbled into me. I sit down next to her and wave down the bartender. Once my drink is served, we clink our glasses together without knowing why and drink. Then I say, and bear with me, nice weather we're having. Oh no, Tommy. I thought you'd be more interesting than that. Can we just skip the weather conversation? I hate small talk. Absolutely not. Ugh, but why? It's so terribly dull. It's unfortunate that you say so. Why do you think people talk about the weather? Because they're boring? Boring people still have reasons. Even stupid people have reasons. They just aren't the reasons we think we have. Huh. Nice we. Hmm. Because it's easy and people are lazy? Huh. People are lazy. But actually... I think that's more the cause for hating small talk than the actual topic of conversation. Oh, do you? You're obviously fishing for something. Spit it out. It's safe. Every person you meet, unless they're a vegetable, can relate to your question. Lame. <laughs> so, what do you think? About the weather? It's hot and horribly humid. Fascinating. Do you live here in Ahura? Three years, yeah. And is it always this hot this time of year? About it, yeah. Gonna taper off for the next dozen weeks or so. I'm glad about that. I too find it terribly hot. And what, may I ask, do you think the sky shall give us tomorrow? And friends, this is the point where Barbara bites her lip in that way that everyone knows means there's some surface-level romantic interest going on. Booyah! I don't know. More like this, probably. Uh-huh. Are you as riveted as I am right now? Well, Barbara, I knew nothing about you, and you knew nothing about me. But now we've talked about the weather, and I know that you've lived here for three years, so the city's worth the heat. You don't mind entering a conversation that offers a new idea, so you're rational and clever. I don't really like- And you like to argue, so you're interesting. And who are you that I might interest you so? That I might be so privileged to warrant your attention? <clears throat> Tommy Garrett Tumblr at your service. Oh. <laughs> Start coming here often, Tommy. And of course, I jump out of my seat and into the street. I follow her, but only till she turns down a side street seconds later. My heart's beating out a symphony of rhythms, and my whole body tingles and glows but I can barely feel it in that moment friends I was a leaf afloat in a river smaller than a leaf a point no more but complete with all my longings and desires I was just eyes floating above the ground in a surrealist miasma I knew wanted understood and was only one thing in that moment Smitten, struck, and stone in love with Barbara. Not to ruin the story, but 
Tommy returned to Lucky Good Time each day for five days, and every weekend after that for a month. He never saw Barbara again. But the picture of her he kept in his mind would feed his longing for years to come and eventually translate into a rage that saw him join the Elysium Corps shortly before the battle over Noonan. Tommy would die in this battle terribly disappointed that he had never broken from his fantasies for long enough to participate in what most would call a healthy love life. So much for a lucky good time. This has been the seventh episode of Cycles of Orion, Volume 1, Fire in the Dark, starring Shannon Lalor as Olivia, Brittany Weisner as Evgenia, Shannon Murray as Teresa, Holly Vestad as Liz, Jarrett Visco as Tommy, Elmira Bahrami Majd as Barbara, and E.P. Dennis as both the narrator and the time traveler. Special thanks this episode goes to Tritachion for Olivia's thinking music, Hooksounds.com for the club music in Evgenia, as well as Tommy's romantic music, and Incompetech for Evgenia's thinking music, Tommy's fumbling music, and Tommy's action-adventure music. We would like to thank as well the creators at Freesound.com, without whom this series would be a whole lot duller. In particular this month, we featured the sounds of The Very Real Horst, Broken Head Productions, Nice Audio, IY Ploponese, Tyra Kamori, Halleck, Tristan Lohengrin, and DW. And of course, we would like to thank you for listening. Tune in next month for the conclusion of the Axiom sequence, four more stories featuring, again, a motley cast of mostly troubled characters. But, in the meantime, don't forget to share on social media, and if you want to read more from E.P. Danis head over to epdanis.com.